I'm going to read just two verses today from 2 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 13 and 14. Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. We live in a world that is ever-changing, politically, socially, technologically, scientifically, medically, militarily, monetarily, morally, and philosophically, just to name some of the many things that keep changing in our world. Sometimes the changes are for the better. But often the changes make our world worse by increasing foolishness, self-centeredness, pride, disrespect, addiction, physical and mental health issues, ungodliness, injustice, cruelty, murder, suicide, rejection of God, ill will towards God's people, and hostility towards God's moral standards. These kinds of changes increase the darkness in our world. And in order to be God's light in a darkening world, which we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ, we must retain the standard of sound words and guard through the Holy Spirit who is in us treasures God has deposited in us and entrusted to us. Jesus said that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, which when applied to us means if we will shine the light of God and his gospel into our world, it will be noticed. Many times we've traveled east to the ocean, and as we go through Pennsylvania, we uh, travel through the lower mountains of the east and uh, you can see far off in the distance cities that are built up into the hills and if you're traveling through at night you can't miss the lights that are there. It's pretty hard to hide a city that's on the side of a hill. Jesus also said no one turns a light on and then covers it so no light can be seen which means it makes no sense, makes no sense for God to put the light of his truth in us if we are going to hide it from the world around us. And so, in thinking through what we're going to talk about today, let me remind us that we ought to let the light of God and his gospel shine from our lives in such a way that those around us may see this light, see it in our good works, how we live, but also hear it in our words, what we say, whether it's just talking or talking about God or evangelizing, that they would see this light and glorify our Father who is in heaven. With that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll talk about these two verses. Father, 
There is a lot of darkness in our world. I am truly grateful for the light that we do have. That you have maintained a consistent light. That we have the privilege to be part of that light. Speak to us today about that very reality in our own lives as individual believers and as a body of believers. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 13 begins with, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, to actively and accurately shine the light of God and the truths of his word into our world. It is important that we retain, as Paul says, the standard of sound words, which have been given to us, given to us in the scriptures, taught to us by godly teachers, passed down to us from the earliest days of the church to things that have been written. This statement, retain the standard of sound words, is intriguing because it establishes, first of all, a clear boundary for what can be spoken and how we ought to live, while at the same time establishing a guideline, just a guideline, that frees us in relation to the how, when, and where we shine the light of God and the gospel into our world through word and deed. Though the boundary and guideline may not be easily discerned from our English translations, and I want to acknowledge that, it becomes apparent if you have the inclination or the time or the interest to dig into the definitions of the Greek words from which the English words are translated. And I realize that's not something we all do, but that is something that I do and I I did for today's teaching. The clear boundary comes from the words retain and sound words. Sound words speaks of a presentation that is free from error. And therefore, it's an accurate representation of the truth. For us Christians, it is God and his word that we are to accurately represent in how we live and accurately present in what we say. This means that in word and deed, we're to stay within the boundaries and remain faithful to the truths set forth in God's word uh, that concern God himself and his gospel. The point is, is that when it comes to the essence of the message, we're not supposed to color outside the lines, as they say today. We're not to add or subtract, alter or redefine, or in some other way waver from the essence of the truths that are contained in the word of God, which he has given to us, passed down to us, down through the years. You see, God has entrusted to us the basic, the fundamental, and the essential truths about himself and his gospel. And he's also given to us the responsibility to protect and remain faithful to those truths in our lives, lifestyle, in teaching and in evangelism, word and deed. So that's the boundary. Now for the guideline side. The word standard, which can also be translated pattern or outline, infers that we have the freedom to express these biblical truths 
in ways that we think best represents God and his words to those who are observing our behavior or listening to what we are saying, including our evangelistic efforts. Down through the years, there have been a variety of evangelistic methods. Uh, Some of them very popular, some not well known, but there have been a variety of methods that have been put forth. There's nothing wrong with the methods as long as they stay within the boundaries of the essential truths of God's word. So the Bible sets the boundaries for the light we shine into our world through our words and deeds, while our personality, our education, our experiences, our understanding of God's word, maybe even our verbal skills and our audience set the guidelines for how we convey the truths residing within the word of God. Just a real easy example, we would talk about God and his word with a child differently than we would with an adult. We would talk to one who has no, absolutely no religious history, no interaction with the word of God or Christians, who is just, uh, I don't mean this negatively, but total unbeliever and unknowledgeable. We would talk to them in one way, and someone who has history and background with church life or biblical truths or the word of God in a different way. This is fine. This is good. To me, Jesus is an excellent example of this. Because when talking about eternal life, he told Nicodemus, mind you, who was a Pharisee, that he had to be born again. And when I think about that, what I believe Jesus is saying is, look, Nicodemus, you've lived your whole life with this one mindset. And this has managed and controlled and led and directed the way you live. You're a Pharisee. Remember, Paul started out to be a Pharisee in pretty young years, probably early teen years. It's possible Nicodemus was also in that same kind of educational process. He needed to be born again. He needed to start over and rethink the whole thing. Come at it from a new perspective. Jesus told the woman at the well that she needed to drink of the water he could give her. This was a a woman who was driven by discontent. She had a number of husbands. Maybe they were all bad. Maybe she was just a bad selector of husbands. But it's more likely that she had a hard time being content with what she had. Jesus told the rich young ruler, who was rich, young, and powerful, that he needed to keep the law. And as we know, those who are rich, powerful, and probably young have a hard time living within the lines, living within what is what are the requirements, the law. In relation to evangelism, Jesus gave very simple instructions to the man he cured from many demons. The man was cured, he wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said no. And here's where we find the story in Mark chapter 9, verses 19 to 20. Jesus said to this fellow, go home to your people. And report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. That's a pretty simple message. It's a pretty simple thing to talk about. In fact, in my way of of looking at life, it's something we could all do. We can all say, here's how God's had mercy on me. Here's what he's done for me. Verse 20, and the man went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis 
what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. That's not always true in our day and age, I grant you. But it was a simple message, an easy thing to do, and the fellow did it. From his speech on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, and his defense before King Agrippa, Acts 26, we see that Paul's presentations were significantly more detailed. They were more complex, and they were customized to fit his audience. And so from the example of Jesus, the example of Paul, the example of this fellow who had been cured of demons, we see that, first of all, who we are, and second, who our audience is. These are legitimate factors in determining how simple or complex we present the truths that we are endeavoring to convey about God and this gospel. And the point here is this. We're free to convey the message of the gospel in ways that fit us and in ways that fit our audience best, be it simplistic or more complex and customized or anywhere in between. What we are not free to do is to change the essence of the message. God gives us the responsibility to make sure our presentation always remains within biblical boundaries and is faithful to the truths concerning God and his gospel. I have looked at a number of evangelistic presentations. I've listened to numerous sermons by well-known people. They say many wonderful things and some of them stay within the lines, but some of them go outside the lines. How can we know with some certainty what the essence of these truths are? Especially when we don't have the time or the means to study God's word and search it out. Not everybody has the time, not everybody has the means. Not all of us have the inclination. Paul resolved this by reminding Timothy to retain the standard of sound words which he had heard from Paul. And if we put Paul's solution to work in our own lives, then we can live this out by carefully, thoughtfully, and prayerfully reading at least the New Testament. And when I say carefully and thoughtfully, I mean slowly, be it one verse or paragraph at a time. And the reason to read it carefully and thoughtfully is so that you can, first of all, gain an understanding of the context surrounding the portion you are focusing on. Secondly, it gives you the opportunity to make sense of the portion itself. If you rush through it, you may have some general or hazy idea, but if you read it slowly and carefully, then you have the opportunity to really figure out, you know, what is the word of God saying here? How do I make sense of this? And third, it gives you the opportunity to consider how that portion applies to you personally or how it further develops your understanding of God or how it fits other portions of scripture so as to give you a more comprehensive understanding of God's word. One of the truly sad things to me is how many 
Christians are inclined to read their Bible without considering in a thoughtful, purposeful, every time they read it kind of a way, what it is saying to them directly, specifically, and how that should affect their lives. This isn't something we read just for information or just so we can say we've read it. I've mentioned this before, and I'm not simply criticizing the idea outright. There is a program that is established that gives you portions of Scripture to read every day, and if you do this for 365 days, you will have read through your Bible in a year. And that may be a very good uh, task to complete in one year. My question is, why would you do that, and what have you gained by doing it? If you've gained, having read the Bible in a year and being able to say that, well, that's not much of a gain in my opinion. And to read all of that in one year, it's pretty difficult to carefully and thoughtfully think through what it is you've read and how it applies to you and what it says about God and what you can learn and how you can grow as a result of it. So we can come to a clear, better truth of the word of God concerning God himself and his message, his gospel, if we will thoughtfully, carefully, and prayerfully read through the word of God. When reading your Bible, I believe it helps to use a dictionary. Too often we read a word in the scripture, mercy, uh, forgiveness, whatever else, and we have this general idea of what it means. And my recommendation is look it up in a dictionary and follow all the options that the dictionary gives you and then think about what's the, what's the meaning here in this context? How do I apply it? How do I see that what God is saying? Second thing is it helps to use a concordance or, you know, you can go on the internet and search out uh, a word. You can look up definitions. You can look up uh, synonyms. You can look up what other people have to say about it. You don't have to like everything you look up, but it'll at least get your mind active and considering things to consider. Options, ways to look at it. And that can open you up to see the truth more clearly. I think it also helps to use some means of taking notes. And the reason for taking notes is because if you have to write it out, then you have to understand it well enough to put it into words. You can run thoughts through your mind forever, but until you start to put it on paper, write it out. You haven't really put it into a coherent, rational, logical form that really makes sense. And when I say prayerfully read your Bible, I mean each time you begin a time of study, ask God to show you the truth in what you are reading. Make that a request every time you dig into the Word of God. Ask God to give you a practical understanding of that truth. Not just understand the truth, but how does it apply to the real world, to my life, to the people around me? Ask God to show you how it applies to him 
so that you grow in your understanding of him and his ways. How does this help me understand you better, God? Ask God to show you how it helps you understand him in better ways than you do. Ask God to make it clear how it applies to you in your daily living. How does it apply to how I treat my spouse, raise the children, work at work, whatever? How does this apply to that? And I think it's important also to remind God that you are counting on his Holy Spirit who has been given to every one of us who are believers. You're counting on his Holy Spirit to lead you into the truths that he has for you in the portion you are studying. God may have certain truths for me in the same portion that you're studying and different truths for you based on where we are in our Christian life, based on our experiences, based on the things we are facing. This is why the word of God, in my opinion, is living and active. Each of us can go to the same portion and God can speak to each of us things that are related to our own life and can help us in how we live and understand and think. And then, taking Paul's idea to Timothy one step further, we can add to our own study of God's word the practice of listening to Bible teachers that you trust. Not just popular ones, but ones that you really trust. I'm saying, as you, such as your pastor, apparently because you come, I assume you trust me enough to come. But also a Bible study leader, commentaries, other study helps. We shouldn't be just listening to anybody, but we should listen to people who we can trust. I have one final thought about this before moving on to verse, uh, the other rest of verse 13. Limit your presentations, what you're telling, teaching, wanting other people to know, to what you know. And when I say what you know, I mean know, really know, not just know about. We can all say words. We can all say the words of an idea or a theology or a doctrine from the Bible. That doesn't mean we know it. If you limit your presentation to others to what you know, then you won't be misrepresenting a truth or a topic or who God is or how God works and how you explain what you're telling them. The rest of verse 13, I'll read the first part and then get to the rest. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in or according to Christ Jesus. The best way to continue growing in your understanding of God and his word and in your ability to present a coherent message is to seriously work at putting into practice what you are reading and learning from God's word. When you start to put into practice the truths of God's word, you encounter your own ways of thinking that stand in the way of putting that truth into practice. You encounter your own fears that are deterrents to putting into practice those truths. You encounter your own pride, your own selfishness, your own passions, these other things 
that are like roadblocks or at least hurdles that you have to get over. And as you encounter them and defeat them and move past them, putting them to death, moving them out of your life, you not only understand the truth itself, the essence itself, you now understand how to actually get there and live it out. And that's what people need to hear as well. If I tell a drug addict that they need to quit taking drugs, and I don't tell them how they can do it, I've only given them a small amount of help. You don't quit taking drugs without working hard at it, without having some kind of method, without having a process that you can work. And the same is true with the sin in our lives. Be it everyday selfishness or some of the worst sins that you can think of. The more we put into practice what we know, the more we can speak truth to others that is useful to them. So understanding the word of God becomes significantly enriched and enlarged and made practical as you honestly work at living that truth out yourself. This is nothing unique, nothing new. It's a well-understood principle that in order to gain the best and most practical understanding of what you're learning in the classroom, you must go into the real world and put it into practice. That's why part of education now includes uh, the opportunity to go out into the real world and work for free for a month or six months or even a year. That's why doctors go through an internship. Why? It's an opportunity to put into practice what you've been taught in the classroom, and that's what makes it real. That's what makes it useful. That's when you really know about it. Well, the same principle applies to learning what God in his word says to us. You see, we grow as much in our understanding of God and his word from living according to what we know as from what we are learning by reading and studying God's word. Verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure or the good deposit which has been entrusted to you or deposited in you. The word treasure in the New American Standard Bible is a translation of two Greek words. The first Greek word is the word for good. And the second Greek word is the word for a deposit or to give in trust. The same Greek word is translated entrusted in verse 12, which we talked about, I believe, last week and here in verse 14. To guard the treasure, you see, that's a good deposit. To guard the treasure entrusted to us is to keep it safe so that it cannot be lost or stolen or changed into something of lesser value. Now, thankfully... God does not leave it to us to do the guarding on our own. He gives each of us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So that by being present within us, the Holy Spirit can empower and work with us individually 
in guarding what God has entrusted to us. And I believe you know this already, but let me just remind you that the Holy Spirit's empowerment and work within us is only experienced by us as, first of all, we trust in him, we believe in him, we believe he's there. Secondly, we intentionally yield to his leading. And third, we purposely make use of his power. And finally, we do the guarding God has given us to do. In other words, though the Holy Spirit's empowerment is always present, it only becomes apparent and useful as we put it to use in guarding the treasure God has deposited in us. And though he is always ready to work with us, he does not force himself upon us or give this kind of help where it is not sought. For me, a well-known Old Testament picture of this reality, which I really appreciate because to me it paints the picture so well. The Old Testament picture of this reality is found in God's promise to empower and work with the Israelites so they could be victorious over walled cities, well-equipped armies, and giants in clearing out the promised land. Think about the very first battle Israel had upon going into the promised land. It was Jericho, a city with humongous walls. How were shepherds who had just spent the last 40 years in the wilderness, not the best place to create a well-equipped army, uh, how could they defeat a walled city like Jericho? And yet they did. God promised to empower them and work with them, to give them the help they needed. But to experience that power, to experience that help, the Israelites had to enter the land and face their enemies in battle. Otherwise, it was there, but they couldn't see it, they couldn't touch it, they couldn't taste it, they could talk about it, but they could only experience its reality, its actual ability to do what God said it would do by entering the land and facing their enemies in battle. You see, God's empowerment and help is not visible. It wasn't visible to them. But what was visible to them? The walled cities, the well-equipped armies, and the giants. That's why they voted 10 to 2 not to go in the first time they had the opportunity to go in. They took what was visible, ignored what was invisible, and said, if I can't see it, I can't count on it, I can't trust in it. Well, we could be easily in that same place. And so we want to guard against that. We want to be careful not to fall into that trap. Yes, the world around us can look pretty awesome, pretty threatening. It can, be, it can seem almost impossible to be a witness or to lead a Bible study or to talk about God to our own children. But if we let what we can see distract us or deter us from the power that is there, even if we can't see it, then we are going to miss out. 
We don't see the Holy Spirit's empowerment. We don't see his help until we start making use of it. And in this case, by guarding our God-given treasures. Now, I do want to be forthright and fair, honest and fair, so I must acknowledge that the Holy Spirit's empowerment and help, neither of those make the battles easier. But they do make them winnable. You may get wounded. That's the reality. You may become exhausted. You may want to give up. But if you continue to fight, you will win the battle and eventually the war. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's empowerment and his working with you, his help that he gives you, is there. So what is it we're being asked to guard? What is the treasure God has entrusted to us? The context seems to imply the treasure entrusted to us is the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, the Bible, from which we learn about God himself, his nature, his ways, his will, right and wrong, righteousness and sin, love, law and grace, the old nature and the new nature, heaven and hell, salvation, eternal life, church life, and many other things important to knowing God and trusting God and living the Christian life. So why does the Bible need guarding? It doesn't. The Bible itself does not need guarding. Regardless of what people say about it or how they treat it, the word of God has been and will always be true. It'll always be the word of God. What needs guarding is God's intended, or what we've grown accustomed to saying, not so much in our group, but within the church at large, what needs guarding is the orthodox understanding and application of God's word. That's what needs guarding. The reality is the truths of God's word are under assault, not just by people outside the church, but also by people within the church. And their intention is to alter our view of God and godliness, to alter it enough to get Christians generally to normalize ways of thinking and believing and living, ways that Orthodox Christianity has for centuries held to be wrong, to be sinful, to be hostile to God, to be heresy. The most recent obvious expression of this has been movements within the church at large to accept homosexuality as a God-accepted practice, same-sex marriage as a God-accepted practice. This doesn't mean we're to hate these folks. But it does mean that the truth, the essence, the meaning of God's word needs to be guarded. The word itself, no, it's there for anybody to read. But what we need to guard is the expressions of that truth. 
And though guarding the integrity of God's word should be a whole church effort, and I do believe that, verse 14 makes it an individual effort. Paul brings it down to a personal, individual effort. I have to do that. You have to do that. Why? Because it's easier to influence and sway individual believers than it is to sway a whole church. And once an individual Christian has been swayed away from orthodox truth, he or she becomes an added source of influence in swaying other Christians, which in time may include the whole church. This isn't a whole church move away. This is a small group starting and influencing, and the influence grows and grows, and then the church moves away. And so, my encouragement to us is that we would take seriously the need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He has given each of us the Holy Spirit to empower and work with us. He's given us the responsibility to guard the essence of the truth that is in God's word. And we will be able to stand firm against the devil's schemes, against false teachers, against misleading teaching, against the influences of others in the church who seek to change God's word in order to call evil good. We can stand firm against that. We have the power to do it. The only thing left is for us to do it.